0: Welcome to another episode of Bitcoin Tech Talk. This is issue number 253. As always, you can find my newsletter at jimmy song.substack.com. All coins are dinos, decentralized in name only. Bitcoin Tech Talk issue number 253. The biggest DeFi hack ever was on the Poly network across multiple chains that amounted to $600 million in value. The smart contract was obviously flawed and had a bug which the hacker was able to exploit. I don't really like calling these people hackers because in a sense, they're doing something that any good lawyer would do with a normal contract. That is, looking through the terms of the contract for advantages they can get. A lot of the media treat this perfectly legal execution of the contract as something that was sinister, when it's really a flaw with the complicated smart contracts themselves. There wasn't a server that was hacked into or a key stolen from somebody. There was simply an overlooked, badly coded clause in the smart contract that was executed. In a smart contract, code is supposed to be law, so to call this person a hacker is dishonest. It's a person that executed the contract in a way the designers of the smart contract didn't expect. This is just a terribly managed project, and the blame is entirely on the developers and the poor quality platform that made such mistakes so easy to make. The insecurity of smart contracts in a poorly designed language like solidity isn't the thing I want to write about, however. The more interesting thing here is the hack which was nominally worth $600 million, was settled as a $500,000 bug bounty. What happened, and how was it the hacker settled for so little? Shortly after the disaster, the Poly Network sent out a tweet to ask for the money back as can be seen above. What is very interesting is the embedded threat that you will be pursued. Again, This was a legal execution of the contract, so it's not at all clear that the authorities would be pursuing this person. But the threat apparently had teeth. Why? (laughs) The key is the next sentence about not doing any further transactions. This was because the Polygon developers essentially got the cooperation of miners and exchanges to completely censor this one address. For all their talk of decentralization, a centralized organization was able to block a user from spending. In other words, Ethereum and Binance are centralized chains. You do not own these coins as much as as have access to them with the central controller's permission. This was done through choking liquidity. Surely, the hacker could have sold the coins peer-to-peer and possibly even mined the transaction, but it would have been extremely annoying to anonymize and would not have gotten the same price as the untainted coins. That the settlement was for $500,000 tells you that the, that coins that the central organization disapproved of is worth less than 0.1% of the coins that are approved. Another way to look at it is that over 99.9% of the value of is dependent on a trusted third party. In essence, this hack proves that all coins, for all their talk of decentralization, are decentralized in name only, dino, and are utterly centralized in everything that matters. This means that there are significant risks, both internal embezzlement, inflation, censorship, and external regulations, force takeover, taxes. In other words, these are fragile projects and dependence on them is an enormous risk. I wanted to write this particular article because it, it really struck me just how much control these centralized players have. If, if something happens on their network that they don't like, they can sort of like issue a fatwa or something against the person that did something that they didn't like. And, uh, and you know, right now it's against uh, quote-unquote hackers or whatever. Uh, but there's no reason to believe that it won't extend to other people that they don't like uh, in the future Um, and this is a really big risk and this is the reason why you go with a decentralized uh, token in the first place is for the ability of the central controller to not be able to do this and yet you know they they uh, you know this is exactly what it did and you know there's no decentralization at all about that right like being able to do that um, Eric Voorhees did something similar uh, when he was internally hacked years ago with shapeshift and he basically called up all the other exchanges and said can you not accept any coins from this address and I think he got something like a settlement uh, with the hacker and he was able to get back a large portion of the money at a fraction and that's uh you know that that just shows how centralized it is if <clears throat> If you can go around and essentially like uh, use the centralized controllers uh, to your advantage, uh, it's really no better than fiat, and there's no better example of that than what just happened. All right, let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitmax Research has published the privacy-preserving proof of liability. The pro- uh, protocol uses a Merkle tree of all user accounts, which can be looked up using a nonce given to each user. The amounts are put in the clear so the users can add them up to see their uh, the liabilities. The innovation is splitting the amounts to two or more different nodes in the Merkle tree. This preserves privacy better as a particular amount being seen in the Merkle tree cannot be used to track users over time. Sadly, proof of liability is not very common in the industry with CoinFloor being one of the few exceptions. I hope a better protocol like this gets users to demand them from exchanges going forward. Uh, So it's a really cool idea. And I I think it was based on something that Greg Maxwell proposed a while back. And this is what CoinFloor uses. It's uh, essentially you give each user a nonce and they use their account number plus the nonce uh, and hash it together to go look up. Um, you know, the liability for the exchange. And presumably if the user is checking every month and the amount that uh, the exchange is liable for is different than what, uh, you know, what it should be, then they can basically, uh, you know, call their bluff and tell everybody, hey, these guys aren't uh, being legit, something to that effect. The only problem with that is that uh, if the amounts have to be in the clear, right? Like, so if you have 10 Bitcoin on there, and it's 10 Bitcoin month after month, people can figure out, okay, that's actually a user account and somebody has 10 Bitcoin on there. Um, by splitting it up, it makes it much harder to do that sort of analysis. If it's like 10.135 or something like that, something specific, and it's there at month after month, it's pretty obvious that it's a particular user that has that and that's, uh, that's bad for privacy. Uh, but if you split up that 10.153 to something like... You know, uh, five bitcoins and you know, uh, four bitcoins and one point five one three bitcoins, something like that, and put them in as three separate entries. Then uh, it, it's much harder. And if you sort of randomize that or put them into, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, powers of two, something like that, it's it's a lot easier to figure out. And um, and you can shuffle the Merkle tree in whatever way and. Um, yeah, it, it makes it a lot uh, more secure. Samurai Wallet has published parts three and four of the Understanding Privacy series. These two articles are, again, very informative, and they go through the difference between PayJoin and CoinJoin, techniques for defeating traditional analysis, and the general starting point problem. If you're interested in privacy, uh, this is not a bad place to start. Uh, so, I mean they, they've published four articles now on the Privacy Series, two last week, two this week, and all of them are pretty good. And I applaud them for writing these. So, people, users especially can understand the issues behind chain analysis and how it's actually conducted and what mitigations there are. Kreb Warmke of Atomic Finance explains DLCs. The post goes through what motivated the development of DLCs. And as they say, this is a useful tool to make sound finance available in Bitcoin. The usage of oracles in DLCs is essentially the only single point of failure, and there are incentives available to get them to tell the truth. The article is useful for understanding this whole area of Bitcoin that's coming in more layman's terms. So uh, DLCs are really uh, interesting and cool, and Atomic Finance has been sort of um, you know, experimenting with various things. I believe they have like options, uh, you know, Bitcoin options that you can buy and uh, and sell on a peer-to-peer level, um, which is really cool. Uh, I believe they're only doing like call options right now. But, uh, but you can do that as long as you have an or- Oracle and everything gets settled in Bitcoin. All right, um, Jeremy Rubin has started a fairly controversial proposal to remove the dust limit in Bitcoin. The behavior of the current software is to consider outputs less than 546 Satoshis as spam. His reasoning is that there are other use cases uses for outputs such as color coins protocols lightning and authentication delegation a lot of developers are pushing back some even suggesting a higher limit than the current one this is not a consensus issue so it will be interesting to see how this gets resolved so um there's nothing stopping a miner from putting in like one satoshi output it's that if you have outputs that are less than 546 and it's not really getting relayed. Um, so this isn't a consensus thing. It's more uh, sort of like a nef- network convention thing. Uh, so Jeremy could very easily like fork Bitcoin and remove the dust limit on his fork. Um, Luke does something similar with other features uh, with Bitcoin knots and so on. Um, but, you know, I mean, there there is something uh, to be said about um this uh 546 limit uh because you know as satoshis get more expensive and so on um you know it it'll capture uh bigger and bigger uh at least dollar value so um you know i I think he makes some good points i think the developers that are pushing back are also making good points but yeah it's a it's a good discussion to be paying attention to uh, let's talk about Lightning. Blockstream has implemented a way to advertise a willingness to do dual-funded channels called liquidity ads. There's no way to uh, before this to know which other nodes would accept dual-funded channels. So advertising what you would accept ought to be very useful for the network. This is part of the C-Lightning release 0.10. So, um, you know, they created this whole thing called dual-funded channels and uh, but there's, uh, you know, in order to dual fund, you need to know which peers would be open to doing that and that they would essentially, um, uh, you know, have liquidity. You, you would get inbound liquidity for some uh, outbound liquidity. Um, and, you know, that, that's a very useful thing. And uh, especially knowing what, uh, you know, how much you would have to provide in order to get what and so on. Um, it, it, it can be very useful and I expect, um, you know, as we move more towards dual funded channels this particular thing called liquidity ads will become more important on the Lightning Network. Lightning address is a way to make Lightning more user friendly. This is a clever use of the DNS system to host your own Lightning node from a domain you control. Addresses ought to be a lot easier to use, but there is a trade-off in privacy since your domain has to be registered with someone, and that can compromise your privacy. So essentially what it does is it makes it look a lot like an email address, Um, and using, uh, you know, basically a lightning node on the back end, it can receive to a particular, um, you know, node that it's hooked up to, and Uh, Give an invoice and there's sort of like uh, communication going back and forth in the background between whoever is trying to pay and that address uh, to, you know, complete the actual lightning transaction. So very clever. I thought it was awesome. And, um, you know, maybe it becomes the standard instead of, uh, you know, node IDs, which are not that intuitive. RedPhone is a lightning-based phone service. You can connect to another lightning node over the peer-to-peer network to establish a web RTC connection. The software allows you to have pay-per-minute services and so on, which you would expect given that lightning allows for such payments. That's a clever use of lightning, and I hope more services like this pop up. So, um, you know, this was uh, from the impervious AI hackathon Um, And the guy that made it, uh, I think, put it together fairly quickly. But very exciting project. You can essentially have a peer-to-peer phone call uh, with no central party in the middle. You're using WebRTC to do the actual call. uh, But, you know, in in order to find each other, you need lightning. And if you're paying, uh, if one side is paying, then they can do so. Using Lightning and so on, Uh, really clever, and I love the fact that there's no central party that's able to even uh, that's able to record anything because, of course, all the communication is encrypted. So, um, yeah, uh, very much much better than the current system, which all have some sort of third party as a trusted central uh, third party. uh, You know, in messaging apps, uh, uh, spanning from WhatsApp to Facebook Messenger to telegram or signal or even uh you know facetime or whatever um yeah this one i think is uh is towards that decentralized web we're all looking for economics engineering etc alex gladstein writes about how bitcoin is being used in cuba what's amazing is how organic the growth there has been and how oppressive cuba currently is the fact that cubans are using bitcoin to subvert their government is encouraging and perhaps there is a better future ahead in that very authoritarian country. As usual, Alex's long reads give us a really good global perspective on the effect of Bitcoin. And this is another must read for those interested in the global implications of Bitcoin. Uh, I I thought the article was fantastic. And, uh, you know, he interviewed a lot of people in Cuba for the story. And uh, it just goes to show how, you know, like, Uh, like how authoritarian cuba actually is a lot of people forget that it's still kind of a communist country uh and you know a lot of the abuses of communism um like you know the state basically owns the people so they can do whatever they want with them uh their main source of revenue is farming out their um medical staff to other countries and getting money that way uh which is a form of slavery honestly um, but, yeah, it, it's uh, the amount of, um, you know, Bitcoin stuff that's, uh, that, that's happening there is uh, surprising and encouraging. Lynn Alden shows why Bitcoin's energy use is not a problem. This is a thorough debunking of the ESG narrative around Bitcoin, and she doesn't skip any details. She covers the why, the how, layers above Bitcoin, and, of course, how Bitcoin uses energy no one else uses. She's always been a very clear thinker, and her explanations are likewise very clear. Though I hope the ESG narrative dies a horrible, bloody death, I suspect that this is an argument we'll need to make continuously for the next 10 years. So this is definitely not the first article addressing energy, um, but Lynn has a way of sort of uh, framing it. Um, in the context of what, what's going on, which I thought was very helpful. And she's, uh, she's easier to read for, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, and her clear thinking shows through. So I enjoyed that article. Sean Dexter has an article on how Bitcoin is an escape from the current oppressive system. The article starts from first principles about the emergence of private property to government taxes and inflation. The article makes clear where things went wrong and how Bitcoin can fix private property. There is an undercurrent of two worlds starting to form, one fiat and one Bitcoin, and this article suggests that we're starting to come to that. Where that goes is something worth pondering. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that, right? Like we're, you do have like AML KYC on the fiat side and really no requirements on the Bitcoin side other than, you know, running your own node, possibly. Um, you know, there it's uh, one one's very much permission based. The other is permissionless. Um, and this is uh, becoming a big divide in the world today where, you know. Um, you need permission from governments to move around in certain countries now, even like democracies, <laughs> or supposed democracies like Australia and other places where you can just do whatever. Um, and, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing a big divide there and this seems like something worth watching from a political perspective. Chinese miners are venue shopping. This is not a surprise as they have a lot of very valuable property. Given the regulatory certainty in Texas and Governor Abbott basically inviting disaffected miners in, Texas looks to be a big beneficiary of the jobs and economic activity that comes along with the establishment of mining as people like me have been predicting for years, the hash rate will go to the jurisdictions that are most favorable for them. And it wasn't going to be China's permanently. We're seeing this play out in real time. And yeah, I think we can put the China mining fought to bed at this point, because they really are moving to more regulatorily uh, certain uh, jurisdictions. And you're, um, you know, like, even if the Chinese government wanted to, at this point, they they couldn't capture more than 50% of the hash rate. They've kicked most of these miners out. Jason Lowry makes the argument for how Bitcoin is mutually assured preservation. His argument that the military is a form of proof of work for any currency makes a lot of sense. The biggest guns essentially get to decide what property rights each person has. Proof of work is much more peaceful and creates incentives to reserve one another rather than go to war. I found the analogy to have a lot of truth in it and gives perspective on the cost of property rights for a society. So, um, essentially, what he's saying is that you know, war or military or the police state or um, you know, or or the ability uh, of the government to be able to enforce its laws, um, you know, both uh, internally and externally. That that's what gives any currency its teeth uh, and I think there's there's definitely a lot of truth to that um, he's also like known as a member of the Space Force and you know just joined Twitter and uh, yeah he's uh, he's kind of exploded in the last week uh, but yeah that those thoughts in there about mutually assured pr- uh, preservation are quite original and very interesting um, I recommend you read them if you can Bitcoin is making waves in the political arena. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the past couple of weeks have shown just how influential Bitcoin has become. Uh, And, you know, like uh, a lot of Bitcoiners are going and calling Congress. They didn't care at all about the infrastructure issue until that clause was put in. So um, it'll be interesting uh, to see how this all sort of plays out in the political arena because... Yeah, know um, bitcoiners are clearly a constituency at this point will bitcoin put the third world in leadership positions going forward uh it's an article by ob uh, who, who has a weekly column for btc times um and i think he's right like uh there's a class of countries that are trying to make cbdc's uh and control their populace that way and there's another uh, class of countries that are just using Bitcoin for the uh, for their currency. The ones with Bitcoin are going to win, and I firmly believe that. Congrats to John A. Tech, who's receiving a grant from HRF and Compass Mining. Uh, politics as we know it is likely over on a Bitcoin standard. This is part of Robert Breedlove's Sovereignism series. Um, very interesting idea that uh, politics as we know it has evolved essentially from uh, fiat money, uh, worth reading. Uh, Bosworth makes 4500 a month running lightning payments, routing lightning payments. Um, And that, that was a little bit of a shocker to me that he made that much. But then again, Alex Bosworth has been, you know, like deep in the weeds on lightning for quite a while now. And he's been running uh, his nodes for many years uh, on a continuous basis uh, with some pretty fat channels. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see if he can keep that up, but that's that's not a small amount of money. Uh, so good for him. Events: I will be at Bitblock Boom in Dallas on August twenty sixth to 29th. Uh, to- Token twenty forty nine is in London, England, on October seventh and eighth. And Atlanta has TabConf on November fourth and fifth. I will be at all three. Um, I am doing the program block uh, programming blockchain seminar in London and Atlanta, uh, October 9th and 10th and November 2nd and 3rd. Um, I do have, uh, you know, some scholarships available. And if you're interested, you can apply at the link on programmingblockchain.com. Uh, podcasts. On this week's Bitcoin Fixes This, I talked to Scott Horton about the military-industrial complex and the U.S. foreign policy since 1979 that led us to seemingly endless military intervention in the Middle East. Uh, So this is kind of topical since, uh, you know, Afghanistan has uh, been retaken over by the Taliban. Um, I think uh, listening to Scott and uh, sort of understanding what's gone on there and just sort of screwing up each time and trying to go in there with war to fix the last screw up um, has basically made things worse and worse and worse. And, uh, you know, it's not a surprise that the Taliban were able to hold out and and win, essentially, um, because, you know, they're they're fighting for home territory. And, uh, you know, like none of these uh, countries like U.S. occupation. um, And that's a big sore spot for all of them. I read through last week's newsletter, which you can find on anchor.fm. I was on the Jason Kavnis show to talk Bitcoin. I also talked about the moral case for Bitcoin with Liberty Lighthouse. And uh, there's also part two of the conversation I had with Blue Collar Money. Uh, and Roways Hanna has written a post based on the new book, and it's talking about Bible and Bitcoin. Uh, my other books are The Little Bitcoin Book and Programming Blockchain, uh, Programming Bitcoin, which you can find on Amazon. And lastly, uh, Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this newsletter. I'm an advisor and proud to be a part of a company that's enhancing security for Bitcoin holders. If you need multi sig collaborative custody or Bitcoin-native financial services, learn more at Unchained.com. Fiatalenda S, uh, this song is done.